turn to Daniel chapter 4. We are continuing our study of the book of Daniel. This morning we will stay in verses 1 through 9 of Daniel chapter 4. So follow as I read Daniel 4, 1 through 9. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. Amen. All right. Uh, Remember, as this chapter opens, this is King Nebuchadnezzar essentially telling us his testimony. Verse 2, it seemed good to me to show the signs that the Most High God has done for me. Verse 3, how great are his signs and mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. He's grabbing on to the vision, the dream that he had in chapter 2, and he's uh, expressing faith in what has been revealed to him. This is a saved man talking at this point. Now, he was not saved after um, God revealed that first dream through Daniel. He proved that in his response, ultimately. He was still lost after God delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego Uh, from the fiery furnace. But he became a believer after this next dream and the subsequent events that are described in the dream in chapter 4. So this is like him writing after the events in chapter 4, looking back and telling, you know, how it came, if that makes sense. We're going to get to the content of the dream uh, next week. That's found in verse 10 and following. But there's still something I want us to think about in verse 1 through 9. So last week, we looked mainly at verse 4 and considered the dangers of prosperity. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, looking back, he's recalling his former life. The first thing he mentions is that he was at ease in his house and had prosperity in his palace. And he mentioned these as obstacles that had to be overcome to trust the Lord. So uh, while we know that ease and prosperity can certainly further harden the lost and present further obstacle for someone knowing their need for the Lord, we also talked last week primarily about the problem of ease and prosperity for God's people. Uh, That was last week. This week, I, I just have one point that I want us to hone in on from this section, and it is the power of the light in the darkness. The power of the light in the darkness. All right, again, Nebuchadnezzar is telling us his testimony. He's still lost at this point 
when he's telling it. It's kind of like if I were telling my testimony, I said, you know, when I was back in college and I'm just at that point yet, haven't gotten to the saved point yet, but he's telling the part leading up to it. Um, We see that clearly later on in the chapter when after the dream and everything in his pride, he he deems himself great again and then God, you know, uh, causes him to wander around with the beasts and all that. But that's that's coming. And I just want you to see that he's still lost at this point uh, in the story. But we also see uh, we also see his lostness in verses six and seven. If you, uh, he calls for the wise men of Babylon, right? He wants them to interpret the dream. And he's just done this before, and it didn't go good, right? He wanted to kill them all because they didn't know anything. And yet he's going back to them and saying, somebody come and tell me the dream. They've already been proven foolish and that they don't know anything, but he's going back. What else am I going to do? These are my wise men. Um, and I think that's one way that we see his lostness in this passage. Anybody know anybody like that? I mean, you know, it doesn't matter how many times their ways prove ineffectual and and without fruit, they're just going to go back. <laughs> or anybody ever done that themselves? You know, you kind of, I think I'll try that again. But isn't that the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result. Um, Nebuchadnezzar's still wandering around in the darkness. We see that in the fact that he called the wise men of Babylon. But finally, uh, Daniel comes, right? And this is like an aha, oh good, because you helped me last time. Verse 8, at last Daniel came in before me. And Nebuchadnezzar was thrilled that Daniel came in. He says to him, the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too great for you. So there's a sense in which he still doesn't get it, right? He doesn't really know God. He doesn't know who he is personally, who he's revealed himself to be. But he knows that there's something different about Daniel and, and the God, or he may think gods, that he serves. He's in a pluralistic you know, culture where they serve all these gods. And so he's thinking, well, these gods stand out above the rest. So uh, while he doesn't completely get it, there's something that is certainly standing out to him about Daniel and Daniel's God. And the reason, of course, that he can see something different in Daniel is because God is with him. So when um, Daniel's in his presence, God is in his presence, and it's the same with us. When, when we go into someone's presence, God is with us, and so God is in their midst. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is, is sensing with Daniel, the power and the presence of God. You know, for us, I think we're tempted to believe that it's not really that significant with us. I mean, we're just us. We're normal. We're kind of unimpressive. Uh, Daniel was like in the Bible and he was really important and the whole lion's den thing, you know, he's in our children's little books and, uh, but I'm a nobody. But that's really not the case. The Bible teaches us that God is even more powerfully with us than he was with Daniel. Because the Holy Spirit of God permanently indwells us, and he did not permanently live inside of his people before Christ. This is an amazing part of our identity as a Christian. Uh, To Blake's point last week, a, a point of our identity that we don't think often enough about, that we don't live in light of 
And right, we still have a choice whether to live in the spirit, walk in the spirit, or live and walk in the flesh. And uh, I think we probably choose the flesh. We choose the ease. We choose uh, what is familiar as opposed to um, walking in the spirit. Now, we could go um, on a, another tangent about how do you do that, but there's, it's really just walking according to the ways of God and dependence on God, not in dependence on ourselves. Um, but you think about this, the same Holy Spirit who was there in the beginning, who created the world, the same Holy Spirit who brought Jesus back from the dead, uh, the same Holy Spirit that brought 3,000 people to faith in Christ after the first Christian sermon that Peter preached at Pentecost, the same Spirit that, sa- that changed Saul the persecutor into Paul the missionary apostle, the same Spirit that opens every blind eye to the truth of the gospel, everyone that has ever believed the gospel, uh, the Spirit has given sight. The same Spirit that has given countless persecuted Christians the strength to endure their persecution in obedience to Christ. We have that Holy Spirit living inside of us. Maybe we don't uh, walk in the Spirit like we should, but we do have the ability to do so because we have the Holy Spirit. You know, another amazing part of our identity, and this is really where I get the power of the light and the darkness. Uh, In Matthew 5, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. And this is shocking if we're paying attention, because we know that elsewhere in John chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world, right? I am the light of the world, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But then he goes on to call his people the light of the world. You are the light of the world. And we're we're not him, not even close. So how, how can that be? Because we are his body. Because the Holy Spirit, his Holy Spirit lives inside of us. He is the light of the world. We are in him, him in us. We are the light of the world. So think about this. Again, when... um, Not just in Daniel's day, but in our day, when a believer shows up in a dark place, uh, in a group of non-believers, in a, you know, when we're talking about the abortion industry or things like that, um, just in a friendship at work or wherever it is, when a believer shows up, the lights are on. Like spiritual lights, God's light, the light of the world, and this is powerful. This is, we take it for granted because we live in the light. You know, we're tempted, my old pastor used to say, we like to sit in our light circles and have flashlight parties and just shine our lights on each other. But um, whenever, whenever we're out, you know, we're used to it. So we're maybe numb to it. But if you're living in a culture that's increasingly dark and you're not around the light and the light shows up, you notice something. Now, some people don't like this, right? They don't want to be in the light. Because when the lights are on, I see more about my life that I don't really like seeing and I don't really want to deal with. Um, So they feel exposed. Maybe they play it off like you're being judgmental. You haven't even said anything yet, but just your presence, there's light. And so, uh, you know, you may lose friends for being a Christian. And maybe all your friends are Christians. If that's the case, make some new friends. Keep the old friends, but make some new friends that aren't. 
Um, but there may be a situation where, you know, they don't really like being in the light. They don't really like the direction that you're heading because they feel exposed and they don't want to be around you. They like you. You're nice. But I mean, I don't know. I just feel weird when I'm with them. So I don't want to be around them. And uh, that doesn't necessarily mean we're doing it wrong. Of course, we don't want to be unnecessarily offensive. But in fact, sometimes it might mean we're doing it right. Just being a faithful presence in their life. But while some may not want to be in the light, for many others, this is life-giving. Because it's cold in the dark. And uh, it's warmer in the light. It's, uh, you can see things better in the light. In fact, this is one of the most significant means that God uses to warm lost people to Him. He uses His people. We see that with Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, even though Nebuchadnezzar continues in his hard-hearted rebellion for a time, uh, the lights are on with Daniel, and he is growing warmer to that idea. He likes it. Hey, you, something's going on here, and I like when you're here. So, so come over here and help me. Now, um, what I want to do is share three stories, uh, two about people that are not yet saved and one about someone who is, briefly, and hopefully just to encourage you in where you are as the light of the world. All right. Um, the first one, briefly, is about uh, Scarlett, who's a, many, a friend to some of you and uh, a relatively new believer around our church. She, uh, I don't know, a couple years old in the faith. Y'all may know better, but about a couple years old. And uh, she was raised in a nominal Jewish home and then went into a homosexual lifestyle in, uh, I guess, after college and came to the faith out of a homosexual relationship. But the, uh, and I mean, just immersed in the, the culture that we see all around us and, you know, it was about as far from the church as you could get. I mean, she was Jewish, you know, if she had any religious uh, tendency, it would be towards the Jewish faith, not the Christian faith. So, um, but she had some friends at work and, uh, particularly one friend, Jeannie, and we could go into Jeannie's story because Jeannie was saved at really in response to Everett's funeral. I mean, she comes to church because she knows Jessica and is overwhelmed by the light and it warms her. And she considers, what would my life be like? These people are experiencing this outpouring of love from, from these people. And would I have that? No, because I don't have anybody like this in my life. And really in response to that, she comes to Christ. And then God uses Jeannie at work with Scarlett. And Jeannie just persistently is a friend of Scarlett. They're brilliant. You know, they're scientists. And, uh, and uh, but Jeannie and Scarlett kind of, brash at times and would just say, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to, you know, get, a, get away with that Christian stuff. And, but Jeannie just loved her. And ultimately, Scarlett was going through some things in her life. She needed someone that she knew really cared. And all, the people all around her that were her best friends didn't really care. And Jeannie was used to bring Scarlett to faith. I mean, it's just, that's how God does it. So often is he puts people in someone's life and the light of the world is there. And they're seeing things. And they're warmed to, to the Lord. And they're like, well, maybe this isn't as crazy as I thought it was. Um, I love both of those stories. I mean, it's just, 
you know, God has used his people. Uh, another couple stories about the people that are not yet saved, but one is uh, a friend of mine. I go to one of the same restaurant quite a bit and uh, have a waitress that I, you know, always ask for. And uh, she's become a friend of Tiffany and me. And I mean, I go there a lot, so it's uh, <laughs> we have opportunity to talk. It's my favorite place, but um it's, she grew up in a Buddhist background, and it hasn't been easy to have spiritual conversations. Anytime I've tried, and it's not like I'm the most bold, you know, uh, a lot of it is just pleasantries and being a friend and asking about her son and different things like that. But um, I've tried to have spiritual conversations, and it hasn't been well-received. Her boss is also from Buddhist background, and it hasn't been well-received. Um, but there was one time where she got into telling me about her divorce and I could tell it was very painful and she was then a single mother and that's very hard. And, um, you know, she was talking about the darkness in her life and I was telling her, you know, I was once in a really dark place too. And she said, really, I can't imagine that, you know? And I said, well, let me tell you about it. So I kind of told her my testimony and she was pretty baffled and, um, and well, what happened? I said, well, God changed me. God helped me. And uh, I said, well, what about you? You know, how did you navigate this time in your life? And she said, well, my mom told me to go to the Buddhist temple. I said, well, did it help? She said, no. And uh, I said, well, yeah, I figured. But no, I didn't say that. But, um, but it really, it wasn't as fluid as, you know, it wasn't that comfortable of a conversation. It was kind of awkward. She kind of didn't want to talk about it, but she kind of did. And then after a few minutes, she kind of changed the subject. And then a few minutes later, she said, she brought it back up. And she said, okay, Chris, well, if I ever get in a bad situation again, well, I need to call you for help. And I think that's a great example of the light in the darkness, the light of the world. Like she knows whatever I was doing is bankrupt. There's nothing there. You know, I was trying in my most desperate situation and there's nothing. But I'm just in the presence of this this guy, and he's talking about his God, and that's different than whatever I was doing. And uh, now, I don't have a glory story about Fawn's repentance and faith, and, um, but, you know, you can pray for her and uh, her son, Ben, her husband, Vic, and I just think that it's, um, it's what we're called to do and to just to keep showing up and, and keep trying to speak the things of God. They never come out as fluid as we practice them or, or hope they do, but God will use uh, our broken testimony, you know, to, to shine his light. And um, I remember when we were studying Ecclesiastes, and the whole background of that book is that the things of this world are fleeting. They're weightless. They cannot satisfy. When it says vanity of vanities, the, the Hebrew word is hebel, hebel of hebel, and it means weightless. And here was the richest, wisest man that had the most women. Uh, and he's saying, I went after all this stuff and it provided nothing of substance to my soul. But God did. That's basically the story of Ecclesiastes. And I, I had these images that were coming to me during that time. And one of them was, um, you know, God and his people are like shouts in a world of whispers. I mean, if you're living in this world and Buddhism is your religion and, and something really hard goes on and you're, you know, it, all these whispers. And then all of a sudden there's this shout and it's noticeable because my whole world is whispers and it's something different. 
Uh, and there's substance there. You know, and so I kind of latch on to that. Or another one, and this is stolen from C.S. Lewis, and um, oh, you'll help me with whatever book it's from, but like living statues in a world of ghosts, there's substance. It's all this fleeting, you know, transient uh, emptiness in this life. But then you come into contact with God and his people, and there's substance. And... Um, we don't often, we're used to it, flashlight party, you know. We may not recognize it because we live among the statues, but I'm telling you, it is powerful in the lives of people who are lost. They cannot deny that God is in their midst. They may not say that, but there is something happening when you show up. Recently, uh, a Christian friend who uh, is discouraged about her relationship with a couple of her kids and grandkids, she has a couple of kids that are atheists and... Um, it's just heartbreak. I can't imagine. They're, they're committed atheists, too. And, um, you know, this child, her son, loves his mom, but has even said, don't share your faith with my children. You know, I mean, I, we're not raising them that way. And uh, this one grandson's like nine or ten. He loves his grandmother. And uh, she was visiting recently and was walking him to school every day. And when she said goodbye to him at school, she hugged him and told him she loved him. And she said, and I'm praying for you. And he said, huh? You know, and she said, I pray for you every day. And uh, to that, he responded, well, you know, Grandma, I don't know what he calls her, not Grandma, but you know, Grandma, uh, some people say that God doesn't really exist, that he didn't create the world. To which she said, well, that's not what the Bible says, which I actually think is a great response. If you find yourself in a situation like that, it's not a cop out. That's a great response. Leave them to deal with God and his word. That is our authority. Um, and... You know, but that was about it. I mean, she felt it was very insignificant, right? Here she, she prays for this child every day of her life, and she only hopes to see him know the Lord. And she gets this little statement of like, well, I'm praying for you. And okay, I'm going to school, you know. Um, and she was discouraged, obviously. But I had this imagery in my mind of the light of the world and these statues in a world of ghosts and and I just was trying to encourage her. Um, her presence in her grandson's life is very significant because the light's on when she's there. Because she is the light of the world. She is, always. That's who God has made her to be. And there's something substantial there. And even though he can't articulate or whatever, he's drawn to her in a different way um, because of that. You know, you never know what God is going to do. When there's a shout in a world of whispers, God will brand it in your mind. And, and he'll, you can't shake it. You can't stop thinking about it. Even the fact that she prays, you know, this is not his world at all. Um, and so just trying to encourage her to persist in that. And God's timing is often slow, but uh, there's substance there in Christ where there's none where he's looking and really where he's being forced to look. So for you, um, maybe it's a friend or a family member, a coworker, you know, a child. Uh, maybe they're difficult to persist with and you feel insignificant uh, in your persisting. You feel like I haven't really had a great conversation. I mean, I try and I'm scared and I try and I don't do good and I had an open door but I missed it you know we just we all feel that way 
Um, but keep showing up. Don't, don't minimize how important it is just for God's people to be there, to show up. And don't minimize what is happening when these people are living in the dark. Again, there's some of them that are going to hate the light. But one of the primary ways that God draws people to light is by showing them the light in others. So, um, you know, God is making his presence known in and through you. And that should encourage us to get out of our comfort zone a little bit and, uh, you know, engage with those people that are hard to persist with. And, you know, go out of our way to go and be light. Now, I would say we don't, first and foremost, we don't need to focus on being light. I think for our own encouragement that you are the light. There is something God has done in you that is so significant, even though you feel so insignificant. God has made you the light of the world. Um, but I just think, you know, I don't just think. It is, it is fact. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you. You are the light of the world. So let us go and be the light to those around us. All right. Does anybody have any questions about that or thoughts? <clears throat> Well, just showing up, you're exactly right. We all feel like we're not equipped. We need some more preparation. We, and look, there are good opportunities, the EE class. and different, If you want to have something in your pocket where you can say, this is my go-to and this is how I'm going to try to engage a conversation. But even formulaic isn't always the best, right? I mean, sometimes it just, you have different angles and different opportunities that you weren't expecting. And um, I think just the big thing is to show up and the Lord will prompt you to say something. And you might say it weird or bad, but so what? You know, I mean, just getting in there and watching God work is is half the battle um, and not shying away, not resisting those promptings because he will give them to us. That's Chris, a good. That reminds me, too, just talking about the Holy Spirit. Um, I was listening to a podcast a few weeks ago um, where Les Newsom was teaching. and I can't even remember what it was, but. What stuck out to me is him talking about the Holy Spirit prompting you. Mm -hmm. And I just hadn't thought about it in, in such real terms, but just if, you know, like if a name pops in your head, that's the Holy Spirit prompting you. Yeah. You're prompted to 
ask someone to go to coffee or take someone a meal or like all of these things. That's not just you thinking about it. That's that's the Holy Spirit prompting you and not to resist that. Yeah. And it was just so encouraging to me to be like, okay, don't wait until all your housework is done to have them over for a meal. Just yeah. act on it instead of waiting until, oh, wait two more weeks and then do yeah. it. Yeah. You know? And he will prompt you differently. I mean, you know, you're describing being prompted in a way that fits within your life, right? Well, I could have them and their kids over or whatever it is. And uh, it may be when you're out at the store that you always go to and always see that person that always has that kind of heavy look. And just to encourage them or pray for them, you know, you never know. I mean, the kind of thing. I Some of the most significant opportunities I've had, one of them was meeting a, a homeless couple at a dumpster. You know, like you never know when God is going to do these things, but just paying attention to his prompting. If he's encouraging you to like be burdened for someone and pray for them or or try to speak about the Lord to them, that's not coming from the devil. You know, he would rather you not do that. So and again, I think to Sam's point, you know, the way that the light sticks in someone else is when we speak. Right. Right. They're, how are they going to hear without a preacher? But don't think you have to have six points to your sermon. Just testifying to what God has done um, in Christ ultimately and even in your life. You know, like with my friend that uh, said, tell him my testimony. And she goes, well, that's a lot different than my life. You know, <laughs> here I am still stumbling around trying to figure it out. being the light or whatever it is, sin can't live in the light. And so if you are talking with someone, I think it exposes sin and it has, it has to be dealt with, with yep. whatever it is. I think it exposes yourself yep. um, because you're called to action, I think, if you are the light. And I think about that, um, like, why, why, what, what, have I, what have I got to lose? And I think it's being called out. Um, well, you said this, but yeah. you're this. And I think... I was, I love that you said your story because I think telling your story, nobody can argue with that. Yeah. It's, um, it is the light and you can even expose your sin in that story. Maybe not your current sin, you know, but just, you know, how you messed up and how God intercedes. Well, and that's too, I mean, you know, a lot of people, Christians are hypocrites and certainly for many that's true, but I resist that only because someone who is a repentant sinner is not being hypocritical when they sin. You know, it's like, I say that I'm a sinner. That's not hypocritical. I'm just being consistent. But you're only a hypocrite if you stop repenting. And that's where, I mean, in your, in your own, uh, you know, family with your kids, I mean, one of the best ways you can lead them, if you step into a position of leadership, you're going to be exposed because you're not that good. And God's going to expose you. But that's just an area where we can repent. That's an area where we can grow deeper in, in appreciation for his grace. And if that's with friends or peers, you know, fellow Christians or kids, we just lead in repentance. And when he exposes us, yeah, I'm a sinner. God's grace is sufficient. Go ahead. I love what Kristen just said about how we shouldn't wait to speak up if we feel led by the Spirit. Um, when I was about to have my surgery, um, it was the Friday before my surgery was going to be on that Wednesday. And I had some furniture delivered to my house. I told you this story mm. when you came to the hospital. Mm. Um, so I had a crazy morning that morning. And I was kind of at the height of the stress of I'm about to have this surgery. And 
has the cancer spread? And, mm-hmm. you know, I was mm-hmm. kind of, it, it was a hard time. Yeah. So this was on that Friday. So I, these two guys delivered my furniture. And um, as they were about to walk out, one of the guys, he kind of looked like um, the guy from the blind side, this huge man. You know? <laughs> and as he walked out the door, he said, God bless. And I was like, oh, okay. So he walked down the path out of my house, and he kind of hesitantly over his shoulder said, prayers to answer all things. And I went, wait, what'd you say? <laughs> and he turned back around and he said, I said prayer is the answer to all things. And I said, wait, wait, you didn't know I had something going on in my life. I'm about to have surgery. And I found out I have cancer. He said, I just knew I couldn't leave here today without telling you that. <laughs> That's so good. And he got back in his truck and he drove away and I called him because I had his number on my call right <laughs> <laughs> I go, uh, can you tell me your name? He said, my name is Marvin. And I said, Marvin, thank you for speaking those words to me today. I said, I really needed to hear that. And he said, I just had it on my heart and I had to say it. And I just think that's a great example of, you know, the Lord used him. I mean, I know the prayer is the answer. I needed to hear from the Lord Mm -hmm. that day. And I just appreciate that Marvin stepped out of faith. Mm -hmm. And that's great. Well, and this goes both ways, right? It's not just reaching the lost, but it's warming one another. Because when he says you are the light of the world, that's a community statement. That's the body of Christ. Um, So let's pray. That's a good way to end. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace and mercy and love. Uh, It is only because of your love for us that we have been redeemed. And uh, we're thankful, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for saving us. Thank you for... Thank you, Holy Spirit, for bringing us to new life. Thank you that you live inside of us and you will uh, do otherworldly, all-powerful things and even give us these small little promptings to uh, speak a word of life or encouragement or help to another. Uh, Teach us more about who we are in Christ. Uh, You say, Lord Jesus, that we are the light of the world and would you guide and lead us to be that light in the ways that you've designed. We pray in Christ's name. Very good. Don't miss Randy Ray preaching in the service if you were thinking about going home. That's not a good idea.